Today is January 31st, 2023. Welcome to The Regimen, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and our guests discuss the latest public health issues. Listen to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. I'm Jeff Rapper. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Rhode Island and the academic collaborations officer at the Rhode Island Department of Health. Usually I'm joined by my P4 student, but she is interviewing for a job. So I get to ask the questions in a study that I was also part of. So it's a, it's a wonderful situation to be in. But let's get to our guests. We're joined by three guests to speak about their contributions to a recently published study that may be changing the landscape for opioid use disorder treatment. The Matt Farm study, the first portion of it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which evaluated community pharmacy initiated, managed, and dispensed buprenorphine care. So thank you all for joining us today. We'll have you guys introduce yourselves. Let's start with Dr. Tracy Green. Hi, I'm Tracy Green. I'm an epidemiologist and I'm an adjunct associate professor at the Brown Schools of Medicine and Public Health and also leading the COVRA on opioids and overdose along with Dr. Rich I'm at Rhode Island Hospital. Wonderful. And then we'll go to uh, Dr. Terranova. Hello, uh, my name is Andrew Terranova. I am one of the uh, general pharmacists that was uh, part of the study. Um, I manage the pharmacy in located, uh, general pharmacy located in Providence, Rhode Island. All right, thanks for being here. Take your time out of your busy day. And uh, last but not least, we have Rachel Serafinski. Hi, I'm Rachel Serafinski. I um, work at Rhode Island Hospital as a project coordinator um, under the Cobrayon Opioids and Overdose uh, with Dr. Green. All right. So let's, I'll give a, a little bit of background here on why did we need to study uh, expanding opioid use disorder treatment. So in the past year, over 100,000 people uh, across the nation have died from an opioid-related overdose, which is the most ever recorded year over year here. Most of these deaths occurred in people who were not receiving uh, highly effective treatment medications, one of them buprenorphine, which we focused on here. Um, so what had happened is, or what previous to actually December, uh, only certain clinicians who had applied for what's called an X waiver for their controlled substance license from the DEA can prescribe buprenorphine. And even then they had patient limits uh, who they were permitted to treat and really depended on the training on how many patients. This is the only medication where we set these limits on in terms of number of patients, training required, and a registration process. So this results in less than one in five people who want treatment or who have uh, an opioid use disorder actually get it. So it means 80% of people uh, are not getting treatment. Some studies say 90%. So in response to this crisis and the clear need for increasing access to medications for addiction, uh, the X waiver program was eliminated as part of President Biden signing the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023. That had this piece of legislation called the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act or MAT Act which now, in effect today, uh, permits anyone with a current DEA registration to prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. But now our study happened before all that, so we had to do lots of different things here. So let's just talk to our guests about uh, how this study came about. So Dr. Green, or Tracy, we call each other first names here, I think. Uh, congrats on the New England Journal of Medicine publication. 
Can you talk about your role in the study and uh, why you wrote the grant? Why why pharmacists for addiction care? Yeah, I so I led the study and wrote the the grant to um, initiate this um, really hypothesis, but um, it was well founded because pretty much the rest of the world um, partners with pharmacies and pharmacists to provide addiction care. Um, the United States is actually the anomaly in that regard, um, and with an opportunity, really thinking about those other spaces and places, um, we have an opportunity with buprenorphine in particular to extend care to more people. Um, the data way where you just talked about um, was an attempt you know, to try to make medication for addiction treatment um, easier for people by taking it out of the opioid treatment programs um, and putting it into the office-based care setting for, for, for uh, physicians. Unfortunately, um, that only went so far. So it was an, an obvious place to, to extend, extend um, access to treatment um, and a safe one at that, you know, looking at the rest of the world, sort of seeing how well it had been done um, and how normed it and, and standardized that it could be. Um, and, and really seeing so many wonderful pharmacy partners being able to, to do just that. So it felt like the right thing to test out um, at the right time and in Rhode Island, the right place. Thanks. Uh, I think it, I always want to, I, I like to quote uh, from some of our partners that, you know, buprenorphine makes sense in pharmacies because that's where the medication is, right? So if we're using medications for addiction treatment, pharmacies uh, should be should be there. Uh, this paper reported early results from a segment of a larger funded study, a larger randomized control trial. How do these um, induction results compare to the results in the coming from the larger study? Well, I kind of think of it as the dessert first model, um, where this is the most exciting part of the study. And the one that I think for, I mean, speaking for all of us, I think it's the thing that we kept knocking our heads against the wall being, why can't we just start people on medication instead of having to receive patients who are already stabilized on medicine and um, and caring for, for them in the pharmacy, which we were able to successfully do. Um, but um, kind of heading to the, the point of the current uh, New England Journal piece was, what if you could actually start them there and begin their recovery journey in the pharmacy environment and then continue their care there? Um, so um, if you will, we'll get to the rest of the meal <laughs> after having that dessert of um, being really excited about um, the opportunity that we saw in induction, which hadn't been done before, um, had not been done to the scale. I, I keep kind of pinching myself when I look at the past studies and realize like we have far exceeded any other pharmacy-based addiction care um, trial to date in this country um, with this number of patients on buprenorphine um, in community pharmacies. And um, for this study, we'll continue to see how they can how they carried um, on for three months um, in the pharmacy. But we're we're excited to sort of tell that part of the story too, but at least for getting us going um, and um, breaking the mold, the induction component was um, timely and in my wildest dreams, I never thought the X waiver would <laughs> would be um, X'd during the middle of the um, analysis and dissemination of this study. So I think it'll be a really more, uh, it'll springboard into new opportunities for pharmacists and pharmacies. And I'm crossing my fingers that I'll find out maybe in a month uh, that we could expand uh, within Genoa. So we're, we're hopeful for those uh, kinds of things and with grateful assistance to, to Tracy for pushing me along and uh, our, our potential funders helping me out there. And so my role in the study was uh, writing a CPA. Uh, I've worked with Tracy for, for many years on all kinds of pharmacy-based things. And then we said, 
I think Tracy wrote the grant like overnight, one June. Uh, and then we said, hey, let's do induction because the um, initiation of controlled substances and especially buprenorphine, those rules were, were relaxed. And so we said, how about we do this? We've got all the approvals through uh, the medical board and the pharmacy board and said, you know, uh, let's do this. So we write, wrote this collaborative practice agreement. I designed training. Uh, Andrew and his colleagues all got the same training that addiction uh, physicians got, eight hours of training plus motivational interviewing plus information on induction. And actually, we also in between had a withdrawal protocol uh, where people could go to the pharmacy and get buprenorphine and to treat their withdrawal. All of those evaluations also part of it. We also did uh, saliva testing, toxic, uh, toxicology testing, and maybe uh, Andrew can comment on that. Um, but one of the things that we're getting with all the attention to the New England Journal of Medicine study is uh, how could pharmacists do this? Because when the waiver existed, pharmacists were never part of that, despite my colleagues and I trying to get that to happen. The CPA in Rhode Island, and as, as all of us know, it's whatever happens in one state only happens in one state. So we're talking to other states about how to do this and, and replicate it. And so in, in Rhode Island, the pharmacist, Andrew and his colleagues were lucky that it was passed 20 years ago to allow multiple physicians along with multiple pharmacists. So we didn't have to have one-to-one -one as it exists. And the prescription is written in a DEA authorized way of one of the waiver providers who had patients within their patient limit. So all the patients who enrolled didn't put the prescriber, the, the prescribing clinician, the physician over their limit. And, um, and so the, the pharmacist did everything else in terms of testing and intake and, and all those other things. So um, we took highly trained pharmacists embedded in community mental health um, um, centers. So already sensitive to the needs of uh, folks, folks who have behavioral health issues, including opioid use disorder, gave them the additional uh, you know, medications for opioid use disorder uh, training, how to communicate, how to do the testing, reviewed the CPA and all the things that are allowed in that. Um, and so that's that's how that went. And so once we got that CPA approved, I think in the, the fall of uh, 2020, um, we needed to start the study. So uh, I want to switch to Rachel to tell us about what those what those first what that first day was like. So I got to be there with her, but it was a, certainly an interesting day when I was quarantined at home just doing work and got the call. So Rachel, why don't you take it from here? Yeah, um, I remember it was, you know, the middle of the first COVID winter. So we were we were kind of all working from home and um, we weren't doing a, a ton of outreach at that point. Um, we weren't really sure how things were going to go with this new part of the study. And, um, you know, everybody was kind of having trouble recruiting for research studies and um, I remember we had posted an ad on Craigslist um, and it was the, the morning after I had posted it the, the evening before and I was driving to the office and I got a call from, you know, our first patient and they said, me and my partner would like to start buprenorphine today. Um, we're not feeling very well. Uh, we'd like to go in as soon as possible. And I got off the phone with them and kind of like just red alert went on in my head and I was like, what, what are we going to, what am I going to do? So I, I called Jeff and told him the situation and he was on board to meet at the pharmacy at that moment. So, um, 
we went to the pharmacy. We we met the the two patients. Um, you know, talked through the study, and um, Jeff and I were there to walk Andrew through everything. You know, doing cows, taking their history, uh, calling our study physician Seth, and um, you know. Jeff and I didn't really have to be there. Andrew had everything down. Uh, it went really smoothly and uh, a lot better than than I was expecting it in my head as I was driving frantically um, to to go to the pharmacy, and uh, it was great. Yeah, it was interesting because of my role doing vaccination for COVID. I had gotten, I had actually this was January 2021, so I had already gotten my vaccine in December. Uh, Rachel had not, I don't think anyone, Andrew, I don't think you had a vaccine. I don't think anybody was vaccinated. And so we're all wearing masks. Uh, you know, the patients are wearing masks. Um, but the other thing was, is that, uh, remember this is, as Tracy said, this is part of a larger study. So we had all these documents for doing patient intakes who were doing the maintenance part of the trial. Um, the induction, we, I, we, I hadn't updated documents. So Rachel calls me, I'm like, I have to update documents and print all this stuff out and go down there and we you know we walked through all those steps and um you know the the memorable thing for me is the patient says i think and rachel maybe you want to talk about your role as recruiting them into the trial right you want to talk more about what those steps were yeah so as the the project coordinator um for the study um i along with a lots of help from my research assistant mercy um, you know, we we do the recruitment, um, going out and doing street outreach and talking to people, you know, at the bus station or at a community organization. Um, people call us, they see our flyers. Um, we're just kind of around everywhere uh, recruiting for the study, um, setting up rides for participants if they need it, um, you know, helping them with with phones or whatever they need, communicating between the study physician, um, Dr. Clark and Andrew and all of the other pharmacists. Right. I think you mentioned some things I just want to go off on is that the, per and, and maybe uh, Tracy, you want to talk about, uh, or, or anybody that this patient population was an extraordinarily marginalized, vulnerable population. And most of them had also been, been exposed to buprenorphine or have taken it uh, in the past. Do you want to, you want to comment on that, Tracy? Yeah, and I think just sort of placing placing it too in the time and space, which it's always helpful to turn back our clocks, really. At that time, um, in Rhode Island, as in a lot of states, um, we were seeing that care for people with opioid use disorder was extraordinarily strained. And Rhode Island, like those places, was um, trying to figure it out. And um, it motivated why we wanted to push forward to be able to provide induction um, care for the patients. Um, not just because the study could do it, but because we felt that we as humans need to do this for our community. And um, so being able to, you know, and reacting to the numbers and, and data that we had, which was the number of people we, we kept hearing about people having a hard time in getting on onto treatment and induction was hard. People were not taking new patients. They were um, not going to their care providers. Um, and um, at that time we had a, a nascent um, 24-7 buprenorphine hotline, which was great, um, but we didn't have um, the same sort of 
volume that to meet the need. And um, this was another touch point. So if you didn't have a phone or you didn't have a way to access that buprenorphine hotline or even know about it, um, you might cross paths with Rachel or Mercy in the field uh, or in, in, in a community program or hear about or see a flyer and have access to buprenorphine care and start at the pharmacy with our study. So that, um, that recognition that there were a lot of people who weren't otherwise um, touched by or reached um, by a traditional care provider, um, especially during the middle of a pandemic, but um, but regularly um, are maybe having that moment during that day where like, I'd like to start treatment and not having a place to start to actually do so um, and building new bridges and new partnerships and um, in a place that in, in their community, a pharmacy that may be the right place to, to begin that journey. And um, so, but the the factor means that the folks that we were connecting with um, were many of those who were missed by those systems of care, the traditional systems of care, or maybe they landed in the emergency department as the place that they started or the um, person there where we have an extensive program. But those aren't really great beginning touch points um, that are, um, you know, we could do more. And so uh, to support that important um, time point, you know, is also to be there for patients who may have access and need for transportation or communication, um, you know, basic mechanisms that we know are important for successful supports. And um, so with the study and with the partnerships with the pharmacists um, and our capacity as a research program, we could at least offer some additional um, wayfinding and resources like a phone and um, transportation in particular. Um, and then the resources that we knew of in, in our community to help support and access for folks during COVID, especially there were more, um, more options for housing, for instance, in a temporary emergency setting and food um, distribution points. So those are some things that we felt were additional supports for the success of the induction period um, supports, um, but um, obviously ongoing care, especially something like housing um, is success is a, a key to success for um, maintenance as well. Thank you for that. The, uh, yeah, I think that that's, you know, two important things that when we talk to other folks about replicating the study is that while buprenorphine could be stocked by some other pharmacy or some other Genoa pharmacy, they're not handing people phones and transportation vouchers, and they're not being reached by, you know, most other pharmacies don't have their own outreach to recruit people. You know, pharmacies don't recruit patients to their, <laughs> to their pharmacy, you know, to their pharmacies, because we're usually not starting meds. There's pharmacies that offer point of care testing and vaccination and, and COVID testing. Um, but they don't have the outreach. And so I think that's the key. One of the key things is if you can do outreach and like Rachel, that memorable call, like I want to get treatment today, there's still no system <laughs> in the country where you can say, I want to start buprenorphine treatment today, only in very, very isolated ways do you have that sort of same day uh, treatment. I want to switch to Andrew and say, you know, how did, how did the patients, um, going off a little off script here, but how did the patients in the in the study, those induction patients, how did they compare to, you know, their life situation to the kinds of patients that you see at your pharmacy? Were they similar or different? Or, you know, what, what would you say about that? Yeah, I think um, being a general pharmacist, we deal with um, a great variety of patients. Um, you know, we specialize in uh, mental health disorders, um, substance abuse disorders as well. So uh, some of these patients are very similar to um, the patients that we're used to providing care for. And, um, you know, it's 
we're we pride ourselves in in being a judgment-free um, environment for patients that do have some of these uh, disorders. I think the thing that was different was doing the study and taking the time to sit down with each of these individuals was I real I realized how different each person was and the different challenges that they faced throughout their their treatment journey that got them to coming into our pharmacy. Um, every person had a different barrier that they were facing, a different obstacle they were trying to overcome in order to get treatment with buprenorphine. Um, and I think the uh, individualized care that we we're able to provide them once we took the time to sit down and get to know them was really the difference um, from some of the other patients that we see because no, no two patients were the same and uh, they all really needed an individual treatment go, uh, plan to meet their goals. Wow, that's great. Um, do you have any particular patient story you want to tell or some anecdote? Yeah, um, I think we've had a, a handful of successful, more than a handful of successful uh, encounters with our patients. And, um, you know, to this day, I have patients from the study that are no longer associated with our pharmacy that still call and uh, we'll, we'll chat with one of the pharmacists, myself included, to let us know how they're doing. Um, we have many patients who started using our pharmacy um, because, you know, because of their involvement in the study and they continue to use Genoa Pharmacy as their preferred pharmacy. They still come in, they get their medications through us because they were so, um, you know, comfortable and satisfied with the kind of care and, uh, you know, the quality of, of uh, care they were able to get through through our pharmacy. And that's all due to, you know, their engagement in the study. Um, one, one particular uh, patient um, had started on, uh, started taking opioids for pain. She was involved in an accident and was uh, set up taking uh, Suboxone through an outside recovery provider. Um, situations had changed. She was unable to continue seeing that provider and um, was going, had been without her Suboxone for some time now. And her life had kind of started to deteriorate. Um, you know, she was having trouble maintaining a stable housing environment. Um, she was having trouble um, with a custody battle over her, her son, um, which was due to some of these, uh, you know, uh, some of these barriers she was facing to stay on her treatment and, um, you know, and she had also was running into trouble at her job. Um, luckily, she happened to see the information about the study, contacted uh, Rachel most likely and, and was able to come in that day and, and meet with myself. Um, and, you know, had it not been for that, pretty clear what kind of a path her, her life may have taken, you know, if she was unable to come in and get started back on um, you know, on buprenorphine treatment that day. Um, so she was able to, to come in, start treatment, left the, left the pharmacy that day with medication and um, was a success straight through the, through the study and made it to completion. And by the end of the study, she had uh, custody again of her son. She was in great standing with her job, um, was working full time and uh, was, was able to provide a, a safe and uh, a stable housing environment for her and her family. Um, and that, you know, who knows where, where her life could have taken her if she didn't have the access to, to buprenorphine that day or, um, you know, was, wasn't able to come in and get seen when, when she needed it the most. Yeah, it's, that's a remarkable story, really. Thank you for sharing that. That's it, the thing that comes to mind is a person in recovery who is on one of the many committees that Tracy and I are on in the, in the state. And uh, that person was talking about buprenorphine as being the foundation for solutions for the rest of that person's life. And, and I, I just think about that. And, and that's why I think I and the rest of the team are so passionate to say, if you want treatment, as our, one of our other colleagues would say, the window of willingness, you got to be open to get that medicine to folks. 
Um, and, and I think the other thing that's great about Genoa that, uh, you know, we see in some other studies is that, you know, there's one study that shows 20% of pharmacies don't even stock buprenorphine. So even if you found a provider, used telemedicine and got it, imagine going to your pharmacy and they just didn't stock it, whether they were part of the study or not, so, or, or had this sort of framework. Um, so I think it's really important that we have this message of pharmacies need to be public health centers, but they only can derive, they can only provide public health if they have the medicines, you know, on site for those types of things. And so I mentioned telehealth because that was the, what the state, which, you know, maybe going away, as we heard today, I guess the public health emergency is over in May. So we'll, that's a fun thing that we'll talk about some other podcasts, but the, um, the physicians uh, on the CPA were able to initiate therapy after Andrew and his colleagues would evaluate the patient and get them in the systems. What was it like, you know, you call physicians all the time for questions and you have physicians on site that you're very familiar with in, in the, the mental health, uh, uh, community mental health center uh, connected to you. What was it like talking to uh, doctors Rich and, and Clark about the patients? It was a really, um, it was a great experience from from our end. Um, the connection and the relationship that we were able to build with uh, Dr. Rich and Dr. Clark uh, as the pharmacists was was great, and I think that was part of the success of the study too. Was we were able to call them whenever a patient came in and um, go over, you know, what we had what we had gone um, discovered from our interaction with the patient about, you know, where they were at at that point in time, and um, you know their medical history, and after our assessment, give them basically, hey, this is what this is what we came up with. This is what we think is going on with this patient and have just an open conversation of, all right, thank you for the information. Now, how should we proceed for treatment? And um, they were they were wonderful to work with and um, just learned a lot from from my interactions with with both Dr. Clark and Dr. Rich about, um, you know, substance use disorder treatment and and uh, buprenorphine prescribing. And um, I think that that level of interaction that we were able to have was was something that really kept the the care for the patients consistent, and um, the relationship that we were able to develop um, really helped to make this this study a success. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in you know collaborative care, and and we hope that as we end the regimen here with the the regimen for for payment for services and things will be something that will come up, but. One of the things I think that's interesting is now that we're in this post-waiver world where anyone, uh, and we hope someday pharmacists will be able to get DEA licenses and be able to prescribe outside of a CPA or within it, you know, what does that training look like? You know, uh, we did, uh, you were part of the, you know, the first cohort of pharmacists to get trained and you had in-person training. Some of your colleagues had the online training um, from ASAM, the eight-hour training. Um, and it's a one-time thing we're talking about incorporating this into pharmacy programs. But what do you think about actually training alongside other uh, physicians or NPs or PAs um, as they require this? Do you think that maybe those bonds form even before you have to work together? What would be your ideal type of training if you had to do that eight-hour training again for the, for, you know, to prescribe buprenorphine? Yeah, I think I think what you touched on there is exactly what I would say. Um, I think the training was a great starting point, and it was great to get some of that information. And um, I know uh, Dr. Rich came and talked to us, and we were able to to talk to talk to him during that training. But I think the more the study went on, the more I learned, and uh, the the better I became at you know assessing a, a patient's treatment needs and 
realizing, you know, what we needed to do to to treat them properly and keep them successful on the medication. Um, and I think if we were able to have, um, you know, pharmacists trained with some some experts, whether it be uh, providers, like you said, nurse practitioners, whoever who are experts in, um, you know, substance use disorder treatment, maybe sit in and actually, you know, learn hands-on, uh, I think that would go a long way. Um, the more, like I said, the, for me, the more I got to see kind of how Dr. Clark and Dr. Rich thought about patients and how they, you know, their minds work to get to the treatment, I think I you know, excelled better at treatment myself. So that hands-on learning would be huge. All right. Well, that's, we'll, we'll see what we can do about that. So we have the <laughs> regimen for, uh, we have the regimen for uh, pharmacist training. Um, and now we need to, where, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, since publishing the study, uh, it's had exposure in the Boston Globe. And we were talking before in um, NPR, Andrew's, Andrew's voice is broadcast across the, the nation here and in several other news outlets. It's become a it's become a key talking point in opioid education prevention programs. I just got another email today saying, tell us about the counseling that you gave patients. And so um, there's a supplement that I think people don't know about that has all the answers uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, but now I think we have evidence in favor of you know a pharmacy-based approach or a collaborative approach to addiction care initiation. Um, so it's important we keep momentum and, and advocate for its implementation. So um, anyone can start. What like what do you think is the next specs? What do you think are the next best steps? What do they look like in expanding this work or sustaining expansion of this work? Well, I think a good bit of it is um, as you've been alluding to, telling the story and you know and actually telling the patient stories too, as as Andrew shared today and. Um, We've been trying to continue to hear from from the perspective of the prescriber, um, doctors Clark and, and Rich, um, from the pharmacists and from the patients, and um, that that begins the you know we are the stories we tell, um, and we're telling each other the story that it actually is working. It's working at multiple levels um, and providing. Um, reinforcement that um, this is an exciting um, field to provide care. You actually get to see people's lives improve right before you by being part of this experience um, and that systems can align to do that. The big alignment is payment as it always has been um, and, and then permission. So next steps for, for me at least, and I think for many are how do we help um, more states um, jurisdictions um, adopt the capacity to legally do what we did um, and then build the training to um, and the skill set um, and orientation to empower pharmacists to um, be able to provide this care in the environment um, in the community that's um, quality um, and then um, proper compensation for being able to do all those things which take time and expertise but um, we have a lot of the expertise already out there. We're just not using and optimizing it properly. Um, so I think those payment mechanisms are really important to incentivize change as they are for all systems of care um, and, and professionals um, uh, to, to get to good quality outcomes. Uh, so Rachel, what you were part of, you know, you, you spent lots, you and Mercy and the whole team spent lots of time recruiting these patients. So like what would be, um, you know, do we need to do a study? Maybe not, but like what other than sort of longer term follow up with the patients, you know, the patient state, as Andrew said, at, at Genoa, what would you say, um, you know, from your perspective would, would streamline the system since you were so active in that recruiting um, uh, effort? 
Yeah, I think um, I think one really important piece, um, and I know Jeff and, and Tracy, you both touched on this a little bit earlier, is um, connecting all of these all of these pieces. So you have the pharmacy, which is um, very critical in in low barrier access to care, but um, you know that that doesn't work if there are other barriers in place with with the patients. Um, so. I remember, um, if it's okay for me to uh, share a story, I remember one one instance that sticks out in particular among many, uh, but we had a, a patient who, um, you know, fell out of care for a couple of weeks and um, ended up um, calling us and, and letting us know that uh, they had been incarcerated and they didn't get medication while they were inside and, you know, they wanted to come back to the pharmacy and um, they didn't have a phone. They actually just happened across um, one of the community organizations that we partnered with um, out in, in Providence and um, you know, didn't have a phone, didn't have transportation, and they were able to reach us. And um, I, I had called this person an Uber to get to the pharmacy. And I remember the for whatever reason, the Uber driver had refused to take this person to the pharmacy. And, and this happened twice. Um, so I ended up driving into downtown Providence and walking around and finding this person and, you know, sat with them, um, made sure that they got inside the Uber, that they went to the pharmacy and, um, you know, that, that wouldn't have happened with, without somebody to help coordinate that care. And I think that's, that's critical for, um, pharmacies and, and other places to have outreach workers or peer recovery specialists or someone that can help coordinate and, and put together these other pieces. Um, and then on the other side of that, you know, if, if this person had an appointment at a doctor's office, they would have been late and maybe the doctor wouldn't have taken them or, you know, maybe they needed the medication right now, but they couldn't get an appointment. Um, so I think that, you know, making sure that we can we can put all of these pieces together is is really critical. Yeah, I firmly believe that, you know, if we're going to have a collaborative team of physicians and pharmacists, and you know, I know the technicians were great at, at Genoa helping out, uh, you know, everyone working a well-oiled machine there, um, but definitely incorporating peer specialists. And we realized very quickly that it's not the pharmacist's role to take in their social determinants of health and, and address them. And we had this research team, but having peer recovery specialists, community health workers, social workers, um, you know, we did interact with, with those folks. Um, but as, as Tracy said, if you, you don't have a phone, you can't be in the study unless you have a phone and you've got to have transportation. So the study provided that, um, th that kind of outreach needs to be continuous. And I think it benefits not just people who need buprenorphine, but for, for all the things. We know 75% of people don't take their meds the right way. Pharmacists are a key part of that, but it really needs to be sort of a, a holistic community um, partnership. And so I think what the study has shown is that if you partner with those communities, they're not going to hear what I think a lot of us hear, which is those pharmacies don't stock those meds and they treat those patients badly. Maybe as Andrew said about training is we need a peer recovery specialist to talk to all the pharmacies and say, thank you. And we did this in a previous study. Thank you for stocking naloxone. Thank you for having buprenorphine. It's really important to me. I'm here because of you. And I think that that's what I've tried to uh, encompass in training is to say, you've got to find the people with lived experience in recovery, and you've got to work with folks to make sure that 
buprenorphine is just another, or the medication for uh, opioid use disorder is just another part of that foundation to, to rebuild their lives, as, as Andrew discussed. What's your what's your biggest takeaway, Andrew? If you could make this study better, at the risk of publicly <laughs> hearing this, <laughs> what, what what would you do? How would you make this better? Um, I think the kind of just to reiterate some of the messages we've been going through. I think the overall coordination between the pharmacy, uh, you know, Rachel and the rest of the research team, and then um, you know the the prescribers as well was really what what made this go. Um, we can only do so much here in the pharmacy, but we needed the assistance from from everybody else to to really, um, you know, become successful. Um, I I think that um, the biggest piece that I, my takeaway would be just to see how um, you know appreciative they were when they would come to to Genoa um, and be able to get seen immediately by a pharmacist. And uh, you know, we had a lot of patients. We you know we talk about stigma and judgment and. Um, you know, that's something that that they're going to encounter in any kind of health health setting. Um, I think um, to expand that, we need to obviously uh, look past that as as healthcare providers and as pharmacists to make sure that we're um, providing that that judgment free care um, to people, um, you know, with substance abuse disorder um, and, and other uh, other diagnoses. Um, I think that the the study would be, you know, something that we we could definitely try to um, expand as as pharmacists as our role continues to grow and we you know we look to to continue to to close some of these gaps in in healthcare um, and provide some of that that uh, middle ground between prescribers and patients and uh, you know kind of help to uh, improve health outcomes for for people in general. Yes, we're hoping you know one of the things that well, I I can't not talk about funding as the regimen, but. Um, as Tracy and I have and others have been part of discussions of, you know, these billions of dollars in opioid settlement funds and people are trying to say, you know, what's the solution? And we start off by saying, you know, 80 or 90 percent of people don't have access to therapy. And we did the study in a state that has lots of pharmacies, lots of health care, fewer limits, no prior auths on buprenorphine. We offer Tracy was part of a team to start treatment at, you know, at, at start the nationwide uh, push not quite there yet for um, uh, prison-based uh, treatment uh, initiation and continuation. And so despite all that, we still see, you know, uh, 2021 was still a year that had the highest number of opioid-related overdoses ever in Rhode Island. So we still, we know that treatment saves lives and we know that um, not only do people need to be able to get access to that treatment without barriers, uh, we need the people providing that treatment to have fewer barriers. The X waiver is gone. So, uh, Tracy, why don't you close close us out for what what your your vision is of where this research goes? Yeah, I think um, well, some is uh, immediate and exciting and kind of novel, cutting edge thinking, and then the other, I think, just to reiterate some of the things that that Andrew pointed to. Um, when I, when we asked some of our international colleagues about how they were how it was doing how it was going in um, in Australia and um, Canada and Scotland in the pharmacies and one of the things that was consistent was um, ongoing continuing education on stigma and um, and harm reduction in particular but it, but especially on stigma and addressing stigma in the pharmacy and I think that that was a real reflection even though they had been doing this for quite some time that it is a um, it's caretaking you know you don't take your foot off that gas. And it's a, we, it's a much bigger than a course or a training or a um, certificate or any one thing. And um, it is a, a 
a lifetime and a, a professional um, commitment to continue to work on improving um, and reducing uh, the chances that um, a patient's going to have a poor experience just by the basis of their um, their disease or their skin color or their um, other constraints in their lives. So I think you have a chance to continue to work on that um, and there are new ways of, of doing so. But I think also the opportunity of um, new medications, um, injectables, for instance, long-acting injectable uh, medications are just around the corner. Uh, we, we have some already for um, buprenorphine delivery, and that'll be an exciting next frontier. And then, you know, we're starting to understand a lot more about fentanyl and um, illicitly manu manufactured fentanyl's effects potentially on the on the human body and thinking about different kinds of um, dosing regimens for patients that might be um, better treated with a, a higher dose start or a smaller doses start, macro dosing and micro dosing. These are things that I expect pharmacists to be expert at um, and be very comfortable talking with patients about. Um, so I think that's a really exciting place for what the future may hold in, in terms of um, uh, collaborations that um, advance options for patients in the many different places that a community pharmacy can take this, uh, this care model. So... All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm very excited about injectables. Rhode Island now allows long-acting injectables to be given by pharmacists, uh, thanks to a law passed in 2021 and some regulations my students and I helped write. Yeah, yeah. So, Andrew, get your get your get your uh, hands ready for those uh, long-acting medications. I know Jenna is a big supporter of those kinds of things. Um, uh, any any other uh, last thoughts? Otherwise, I'll I'll take us out. Okay, <laughs> so I'd like to thank our guests for uh, the generous donation of their time here and providing uh, amazing insight on this critical aspect of uh, judgment-free patient care and expanding uh, pharmacy practice. Uh, everyone be sure to follow at PharmD Pub Health on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to at PharmD Pub Health on YouTube where you're watching this right now and stay tuned for next week's episode on the recently expanded access to mifepristone for reproductive health through pharmacies across the nation. Thank you very much.